Welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed, the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team here combs through the literature so that you don't have to, and they find the best articles, and then provide expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And if you'd like to support us or just reward yourself for all the hard work that you put in listening to or reading the journal feed, we offer CME credits through our partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. And now without further ado, we move on to this week's episode, which is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the sensational Aaron Lacey and Clay Smith. And the first article for this week was titled Blunt Cerebrovascular Injury, the case for universal screening out of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. As things currently stand, the screening criteria for blunt cerebrovascular injury are kind of a real burden. With up to 17 criteria, it's like sitting down to fill out a survey. And that's not exactly the mindset that you want to be in when making critical decisions for your patients. And there's a real risk of both mortality and stroke in these patients with risks as high as 25%. The question then becomes, if it feels like so much trouble to decide if you should or should not scan, then why not just get a CTA for everybody with serious blunt trauma? This study was a retrospective review of about 4,600 major trauma activations over two years at a single level one trauma center. After a process change whereby all major trauma activations received routine CTA through the Circle of Willis as part of the PAN-SCAN CT imaging protocol. The prevalence of blunt cerebrovascular injury in this cohort was 2.7% for a total of 126 patients. Here they compared the universal scanning approach as the gold standard against the ACS and Denver screening tools. I won't bore you too much with all of their sensitivities and such, but it boiled down to that all in all, there's 23% of patients with grade 3 blunt cerebrovascular injury or greater who would have been missed with these screening tools. So with that in mind, the conclusion comes down to why not do it? These patients are already being scanned and thus being exposed to radiation and IV contrast. The addition of a little bit more is probably minimally more expensive and negligibly more radiation. So why not save your cognitive bandwidth for other things that aren't long criteria lists and just get the scan? In a spoonful, clinical decision tools had poor diagnostic accuracy when compared to universal CTA for blunt cerebrovascular injury, with up to 23% of serious injuries that could have been missed if you don't scan everyone. Next is the second article, titled The Association of Non-Invasive Oxygenation Strategies with All-Cause Mortality in Adults with Acute Hypoxemic Respiratory Failure, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the JAMA. Now, although it can undoubtedly save lives when used properly, Endotracheal intubation, even in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, is no joke, and there are some significant risks associated with it. And I know it might sound easy enough to breathe for somebody, but apparently we're just not that great at it. So if there's anything that we can do to avoid intubation, which might mean you're actually providing better care, then we might consider doing that. In this case, that would mean non-invasive ventilation. These authors did a systematic review of 25 RCTs totaling 3,800 patients and analyzed outcomes between standard oxygenation strategies with flow rates less than 15 liters per minute and non-invasive ventilation strategies. In this case, that meant face masks, helmet oxygenation, and high-flow nasal cannula. The primary endpoint was all-cause mortality up to 90 days, 
with a secondary outcome of intubation up to 30 days. For the primary outcome, there was a decrease in all-cause mortality in 90 days in patients who had helmet ventilation for a reduction of 60% or a risk ratio of 0.4, as well as for face mask non-invasive ventilation for a reduction of 17% or a risk ratio of 0.83 when you compared either to standard oxygenation therapy. As for the secondary outcome, which was intubation at 30 days, all forms of non-invasive ventilation showed decreased rates of intubation. The MOSO was with helmet ventilation for a risk ratio of 0.23, and both face mask and high-flow nasal cannula had risk ratios of 0.76. So in a spoonful, compared with standard oxygen therapy, non-invasive oxygen strategies were associated with lower risk of death and lower rates of endotracheal intubation in patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. And this advice has already come out as the prevailing strategy for COVID-19 patients, after we seem to have learned our lessons about early theories thinking about early intubation. Next is the third article, titled Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. The great mimicker, lupus, named after a wolf for a reason. And these patients aren't rare either. You are going to see them in your AD, and they can present with urgent problems and dangerous medication side effects. Here's the journal feeds review of all you need to know about lupus patients in a spoonful. The common presentations are quite a list of different things. I personally like to remember them using the mnemonic that spells out rash or pain. Starting with R, R is for rash, either a malar or discoid rash. A is for arthritis, usually of two or more joints. S is for serositis, either pleuritis or pericarditis. H is for hematological disorders, hemolytic anemia, leukopenia, lymphopenia, or thrombocytopenia. O is for oral ulcers. They're painless and may also be nasopharyngeal. The second R is for renal disorders, proteinuria being the most common. P is for photosensitivity. A for anti-nuclear antibodies. I to remind you that it's an immunological disorder. And so you can have anti-double-stranded DNA, anti-Smith, and anti-phospholipid antibodies. And finally, N for the neurological disorders, including seizures and psychosis. Again, if you've ever had trouble remembering all of those, you can try using rash or pain. For rash, arthritis, serositis, hematological disorders, oral ulcers, renal disorders, photosensitivity, anti-nuclear antibodies, immunological disorder, and neurological disorders. Any of those four is enough to make a diagnosis and be especially watchful in African-American women who are disproportionately affected. So common presentations that you might see in the ER that are concerning are all related back to the diagnostic criteria we just spoke about. So these are things like hematological manifestations, shortness of breath, PE, chest pain, neurological and neuropsychiatric presentations, a rapid decline in renal failure, and fever. On the more severe end of the spectrum, you can see patients with lupus nephritis, alveolar hemorrhage, and CNS vasculitis all of which will require high-dose steroids and immunosuppressive medications. A special population to consider is pregnant lupus patients who will often experience flares and are at even higher risks for DVTs and PEs than they already are. As well, they have increased rates of preeclampsia and HELP syndrome. For treatment, it's the same kind of things that you see in most inflammatory diseases. Glucocorticoids, antimalarial agents, NSAIDs, immunosuppressants, and also some B-cell targeting biologics. Hydroxychloroquine is the most commonly used drug, so although it doesn't work on your COVID patients, it does work here. Also, as you can imagine, in patients getting regular immunosuppression, fever is concerning. 
and may indicate opportunistic infections which should be treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics. Of course, never be afraid to admit patients with severe presentations, but for the most part, this is going to be outpatient management. And that's it. That's the whole roundup. That's everything that you need to know about lupus. But if you want to know a few more specifics about the medications and their side effects, then the paper actually had a lovely table, which you can find on our blog or, of course, in the original article. Next is the fourth article titled Leviteracetam versus Phenobarbital for Neonatal Seizures, a randomized control trial out of the Journal of Pediatrics. In adults, the first step in treating seizure is benzodiazepines. Everyone can agree on that. Then things get a little bit muddier for the second step, though. In neonatal seizures, we have even less certainty than that. Phenobarbital and phenytoin are often used, but there's no FDA-approved drug. Another option is levetiracetam, but does it work? This study recruited 83 patients and randomized them to phenobarbital or levetiracetam. The primary outcome was seizure-free status for 24 hours by EEG, which was achieved in 80% of the phenobarbital group, but only 28% of the levetiracetam group. Levetiracetam was only slightly more effective if you increase the dose from 40 mg per kg to 60 mg per kg on top of it. On the other hand, phenobarbital was more effective, but this also came at a cost. There was more side effects, which were mainly hypotension, respiratory depression, and sedation. In post-ad hoc analysis, 24-hour seizure-free rates on bedside exam by a neurologist were 83% for phenobarb and 36% for levetiracetam. So in a spoonful, phenobarbital was more effective than levetiracetam for controlling neonatal seizures, but it also came with more side effects. And lastly, the fifth article titled Diagnosing and Treating Systemic Racism out of the New England Journal of Medicine. As doctors whose mantra it is to race to treat everybody who walks through our doors, we might think that racism is below us. But that's the very root of racism in itself, thinking that we are better than anybody else. If you take even the merest second to think about it, you'll see that judging people based on their race really makes no sense. Unfortunately, it's hard for everyone to think about it all the time, even if it just takes a second. And so the tendencies for racism can live in all of us. And thus the effects of racism are widespread and very complicated. But there are ways for us to help counter it in medicine. This paper helps give us a few tips to root it out and counter its effects. The first step is to remember why we're here to build trust with our patients so that we can best treat them. To help do this, we need to recognize our biases when caring for minority patients. This includes seriously considering social determinants of health, which have contributed to their lives and how they've received care until this point, and then seeing what can be done to mitigate those effects. So while we may not be able to fix past injustices, we can acknowledge them and address them in the present. It's a scary topic for many, but we need to listen, learn, and discuss racism as it relates to our practices and our training, and then use that information to strike towards a healthcare system that provides the best possible care for everyone, regardless of their race. In a spoonful, we may be highly trained, but we are not superior to anybody. We are not above this problem, and we've done a lot to contribute to it in the past. If we can't accept these things and that every single person deserves to be treated with the utmost respect, then we're really lost. We're all equals, and so we have to acknowledge our part to play in the fight against racism. All right, coming down off of that, that's all for today. Let's do a quick wrap-up of everything we talked about. 
First, consider universal CTAs for your blunt cerebrovascular patients, or else risk missing up to 23% of serious injuries. Next, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure is all the rage nowadays thanks to COVID. This systematic review showed a benefit in non-invasively ventilating your patients over standard oxygen therapies to lower mortality and stave off intubation. Third, lupus, lupus, lupus. It's complicated, but it's manageable. There are 11 criteria, four of which are needed for a diagnosis, and all of which are good for helping you remember what to look out for. I like to use a mnemonic rash or pain to remember them all. Next, from the fourth article, low risk is low reward. Phenobarbital has more side effects, but was significantly more effective at controlling neonatal seizures than levetiracetam. And lastly, from the fifth article, racism is a problem in medicine too. And if we're not acknowledging it, then we're also part of the problem. So that's all the summaries from this week. If you'd like links to the articles, those can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.